want to welcome everybody to the Resimply podcast. We have our guest, Jonathan Green. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking your time to hang out with us and tell some stuff about real estate investing and, and agent side. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Jonathan. Yep. So I've been investing for more than 30 years. I grew up with a dad who was an investor as a kind of side hustle, but it was really his main hustle. So from five years old on, I was going into foreclosures, unlocking the doors, going to yard sales, making offers on yard sales. And as I got older, I started to manage my dad's properties when I came home from college in the summer, did collections on all the rentals. Um, so I, I technically owned a lot of properties before most people when I was like below 10. My dad knew how to maximize tax benefits and trust and stuff like that. So I've been playing with real estate my whole life and then I'm still an active investor. Um, and now I run a big on-market team of 35 agents in four states. Uh, and of course I have, just like you, I have my own podcast called Zen and the Art of Real Estate Investing. And we love, uh, I personally love being on other investing podcasts because I just love helping investors not make the mistakes that I see a lot of people making out there. That's awesome. Yeah, no, so I, you talk about being in it from a young age. I definitely, both my kids, uh, I have a four and a seven-year-old and they love it. They, in the beginning, they were kind of bored. Now like, daddy, we're going to walk houses today. We're going to drive by a house. They, they understand construction zones and stuff like that. So, well, it's good for you to know then that when I, I didn't, I didn't really get it all when I was younger, but then as I was getting older, 18 to 22, it all started to crystallize. And I was like, all the stuff he's been telling me is now starting to make sense. And I wanted to take action. And now my kids are 21 and 19. My son, who's the oldest is now like ready. He's ready to start helping with investing. He wants to house hack and he's also ready to get his license too. So I kind of wait on my kids and I've always showed them, you know, we've lived in a lot of different houses cause I don't like to stand still, <laughs> Yeah. you know, fix it up, sell it, move again. Um, but yeah, I think it's important. A lot of people get into it because it is the legacy type business that they're looking for, that they can leave property, uh, that is going to turn income to their kids. Yeah. Especially if you understand how to use some of the tax stuff with CISA accounts and different things like that, your kids can own properties at, at whatever age and, and really benefit them, you know, kind of start their, their future a lot better. Absolutely. And so when you, so you started let's say you started managing or helping your dad with collection stuff at 18 that 21 22 when did you start buying properties on your own around 21 yeah i had owned a bunch and my i was fortunate enough that my dad kind of looped me in so even probably from about 14 on I, I knew which properties uh were in my name with my sister and with my dad so we would walk those properties so I started buying directly on my own, just in my low twenties. I, I just bought. So one thing that I've been good at my whole career is something that most people don't talk about. It's just, I'm really good at buying my personal residences. And that's always what I've done. I, 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 start, I started buying when I was in Florida cause I had gone to Florida uh, to go to law school. So I was 22 or 23 at the time. And I just know how to buy in areas that will appreciate. So I've been a, basically an appreciation investor more than a cash flow investor my whole life. And I think that the investing world never focuses on personal residences, but I've made huge amounts of money on just buying right, living there for a few years and then selling and leaving and doing it again. And you can do that as an upgrade. And also you get the personal benefit of enjoying the houses that you live in um, as well. 
Yeah, I, I do think I've actually talked about it a little bit the last couple of weeks, how people don't look at the personal residence as a form of uh, an investment type thing, strategy vehicle. But I've had a handful of friends really ride that three to five year appreciation window and have moved into some really nice areas with nice homes, have either no mortgage or mortgage amounts less than a lot of people living in a lot of different areas. Yeah, I mean, you know, real estate's all about riding the waves and knowing when to sell, when to buy, what areas are up and coming, you know, which areas are going to gentrify, which areas are going down. And I think studying the markets and watching like where my dad wanted to buy and where I thought was interesting and starting to trust myself helped me, you know, I, I never I bought in areas that I thought were were really nice that the prices were just better, you know? Yeah. And then you turn around and, and in those days, it was like, I, you know, either double my money on some, but the first property I bought was just, a, I bought like a, a standard single family in a development in Florida where at the time, like all of them looked the same. But I bought the, there was like seven on the market at the time. And I bought the, the one that looked the worst, which pretty much was still good. They weren't yeah. old houses. It was just like, it just needed everything. I moved in, I painted it, recarpeted, did a few things. I mean, you can't really do much with these townhouses and the HOAs in Florida. And then I lived there for like a year and really liked it. And then I just turned around and sold it. And that one I probably made not a ton. I made like maybe 25, 30 grand. But that's kind of the light bulb moment that was like, oh, all these things that my dad taught me over the years. Now it makes sense. I barely did anything, you know, and by the when I sold, some of those were still on the market because it was just like it was a weird cycle of time. This was, I don't know, 1996, maybe. And there's just the stuff just sits on the market. You know, there's plenty of properties. They all look the same. It's just how, how you can trade them. And then after that, I moved to more non-development type. And that's where I really think is interesting. I love houses. So finding unique houses is is kind of exciting to me. Yeah. And that's you know the non-development stuff, the older, older ranches, the older subdivisions, those houses can have a lot of character and you can do a lot of fun stuff with them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you learn along the way what you can get the most for sometimes you're presented with an opportunity especially if you're doing off market where you're going to be able to make a uh, little money and to me like any positive money is good as long as it's not a, a drain on my life correct yeah um i because i've i've made money and it's drained and i've made less money with no drain and i'd rather have that um consistently over and over again i agree i so. agree and so you so you started you bought your personal residence and then did you grow the investing side did you go more agent side like what was kind of where you directed your your business yeah no i mean when i started i i again that was the first one i bought by myself but i i owned a lot of properties at that time you know that were uh part owned with my dad and then that's later on maybe 10 years after that, my dad passed away. And then my sister and I turned into full management of the properties that we had already owned anyway. So I, I, I had a lot of properties active at a time. Uh, even then at 20, I probably, I don't even know. I had a lot of doors to, to kind of play around with. The ones that I was managing when I would come home from college or at the end of high school were the same doors that we still owned. Um, yeah. But I never, I never really was one of those investors that tried to grow my own like personal empire indoors. I never got into multifamily at the time uh, and I still not. 
I love it. I love to counsel other investors on it, but it was never my thing. I like living in houses. I like flipping. I've done a lot of flipping, but not uh, ever at scale. Like I'm someone who can flip, you know, two or four a year. And I, I feel like fine with that. And some of them I live in and I like to, you know, uh, flip at the end, which is I'll live in a house for that's nice. But then when I know I'm leaving, I go buy another house and then I flip the house that I was in. I call it back flipping. And I find that I've already gained the, the you know, maturation and appreciation from three to five years. And then I also upgrade the whole house on the way out, which, you know, for people who get emotional about houses, they feel like, oh, I wish I could have lived there when it was that way. But I don't care. I have like no <laughs> emotional attachment yeah. to homes because of how I grew up. You know, we would get the house every way that we wanted and then my dad would say we're leaving <laughs> say why and then he'd say well we're going to make this amount of money because now somebody wants to pay us more we're going to go do it again and that's how i grew up on weekends with him so i i understood it as i moved forward yeah i've i haven't heard of anybody doing it that direction though but i can see the benefits of that and then you get you probably even get a little bit bigger push because the renovation you're doing is now brand new you know nobody's even lived in it that's exactly why. So backflipping is just, I mean, people think of it like, oh, you're living in a bad house. I'm not, but like, I'm not living in a perfect house either. And like you said, if I did the renovation when I moved in, by the time I move, it's going to be five years old and there's going to be other stuff wrong. So if you have the leverage to do what I do, which is just leave, buy another house and then focus on the house and then flip it, you're already ahead. So say yeah. at the time, I, I, in, when I lived in Montclair, New Jersey, I bought my house for like 550, I think in 2013, lived there for six years with my kids. And then I flipped it, but I was already way up. But when I flipped it, I, I didn't have to spend that much because it was a nice house. I probably spent like over the whole course of the six years, I maybe spent a total of a hundred grand, which included a sewer renovation, but then it's, it's sold for 883. So, you know, over time, you're just getting appreciation. Plus, like you said, you're catching a market and then the whole house felt brand new. And I didn't do everything. I'm not taking away the character of the home. I'm making smart decisions, you know, on where you can, if you can get a primary suite with an ensuite, you're going to want to do that. You know, if you can upgrade all the bathrooms, fix the kitchen, you know, make more house flow. Um, great. But I didn't even knock down any walls or anything. I just created different types of spaces that I felt at the time were uh, more conducive to like modern buyers. I like that. I like that. I've I've never heard of anybody doing that, but I definitely, because we just bought or just moved into a house that we renovated back in August and already, you know, we're, I'm already in my mind's like, what's next? Um, Cause I have no emotional attachment to it at all. And I like the idea of maybe living in it and then, you know, kind of reversing the renovation on the backside. Well, think of it this way. If you know, I mean, people get too emotionally attached to houses anyway, you're going to leave. I mean, I mean, rare, rarely are you going to try to stay in a house for 20, 25 years. That's like a nice thing, you know, just like, you know, storybook relationships are, but that doesn't really always work like that. So to me, houses are assets. Uh, I like living them. I appreciate the time in them, but I can go create the same feel somewhere else. You know, and if I can do something smart with the property, that means that I can give the wear and tear on it and know that when I leave, I'm going to already fix everything. So I don't yeah. really have to overthink it. Um, and I feel like I'm just ahead. Again, you 
you either have to have the money to go by the second or if you've had the good job on the appreciation you just take a HELOC at the end just to go buy the other one and then you just cash it out when you sell and you know you have to watch the market cycles too I, I mean I got lucky because I sold that one that we were talking about like the pandemic literally was just coming and like it just happened and they closing took longer we got worried like we weren't sure what was going to happen but it closed but again that property that sold for 883 it's probably worth like you know 1.3 now because the market in that, that town is just insane so i never get upset that somebody else did well i love a win-win i did well the new buyers who bought from me a renovated product they're doing well they're going to sell to somebody else who's doing well I think too many people just get a little bit insular about real estate and think it's all about them. But, you know, jobs to find as many win-win scenarios as possible so you can feel like, okay, everybody's benefit instead of, you know, fighting about properties in a state like New Jersey, which is the densest state. There's houses everywhere. Like, this isn't the, the last best house. There's just going to be another one that I see next week that I like just as much. Yep. 100% 100 agree with that. So... So let's talk a little bit about the agency side of what you do now. So you said, is it 34 agents? Yep. Yeah, I have 34 agents in four states. Um, been running this. I've been licensed for about 10 years. This team, this particular team, it's called Streamline Properties on Market. Um, and we've been running this team for almost three years now. Okay. Yeah. So are you like, do you have like a brokerage or is it like a team? Cause is it, uh, streamlines, uh, streamline properties on market broker by exp realty. So we, we, yeah. I brokerage is exp. They're an umbrella for me. We kind of run like a mini brokerage. Um, yeah. you know, we have all our own systems, all our own backend services, you know, employees and everything on that end. Um, but when I had started this team, we really started by focusing on investors and being the in investor friendly agents. That's what people knew me for when they went to bigger pockets. So I had a lot of uh, people coming to me for investing advice and I wanted to make sure that I could then put that in play. Uh, and it, New Jersey is a tough state because the taxes are really high, highest taxes per capita in the country. So you have to be a different type of investor. You can't use your standard spreadsheets in New Jersey. I have the same conversation every week. Somebody says, hey, the deal doesn't fit in the calculator. And I said, well, I told you that. That's not how it works in New Jersey. The taxes are too high. You're buying assets. You're buying assets that are going to appreciate. And I have lots of investors who are cash flowing very well. But in a state like New Jersey, especially right now, like you need to be putting 20% down and have like no PMI to be uh, hopeful for cash flow. So that, you know, FHA house hack, very difficult in a state like New Jersey right now, uh, just, just to be even okay on the money side. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. we... Yeah, we do do everything. We work traditional buyers and sellers. We do probably this year, we'll do about 250 deals. Uh, but we have a big investor portal. We do meetups uh, under the same name as the podcast. So we have meetups once a week where no pitches, investors just come talk about their deals. Um, we help a lot of investors buy multifamilies and then help them learn to manage it themselves because we're not advocates of property management, at least not in New Jersey. Got it. Okay. So let's talk about the investor realtor relationship. Cause I think a lot of people, I know myself when I first got into real estate investing, it wasn't a relationship I took very seriously. Um, I've since changed my opinion on that in the last couple of years. And we talked about it a little bit before we recorded um, about how important you think it is. Yeah, I mean, tantamount. I, I, I mean, and it goes both ways. We, we were talking about this before. There's 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 terrible investors out there. I mean, unscrupulous, complete BS on the proof of funds. So from an agent side, like 
it's hard to trust just a regular investor who you don't know. Going the other way, it's the same though. I mean, most real estate agents are terrible and the majority, 99%, don't know anything about investing. So I don't blame people for thinking that it's worthless to have a good investment, you know, investor-friendly agent. You will know it when you have one though. And the one that you know is in your corner is the one who's always telling you, no, don't buy that. And that's where I really kind of like earn my keep with people. They called me the deal killer because they would come with me with a deal they were so excited about with another agent. And I'm like, if you want to be friends with me, even you do this deal, I'm never going to talk to you again. It's a horrendous deal. You're going to lose all your money. And then they would see it through eyes of someone who really wants to help. And I think that's the difference. Uh, I don't blame either side, agents or investors, for being leery of each other because that's warranted. The thing is, the more relationships that you build, it's why we do meetups. We want people to develop those relationships. From an agent side, an investor's your best friend. You know, just four flips a year is eight deals for you as an agent. You find yeah. them a property, you're on the buyer side, then you list it. And then you're always listing flips. So you're listing better than average quality homes, which helps you get more listings. So from an agent side, I tell everybody all the time, we're coaching people. If you just have one really good investor, you can add so much to your deal portal. You know, you could do 12 deals. That's just six six flips. That I mean, for people who do volume, that's not a lot. Four flips is good for a year, but that's eight deals. And then on, on the other side, you know, I just think like we're vetting investors the same way. You know, if an investor doesn't want to show me a proof of funds, I'm not going to go out of the house because I need to know with the people that I know, I can't risk a relationship that I have by trying to bring someone into a deal who I haven't fully vetted. And I think it's a it's a trust thing. But to your point, you're only going to know when you find it. But finding that agent who really gets you knows how to run the numbers and is willing to tell you like, no, nah, I'm not even I won't even I, I will tell people flat out, I'm not writing that offer for you. That's stupid because I'm not the type of agent. I'm busy. I have a big team. I work a lot of regular on market. I'm not writing lowball offers. We don't write lowball offers. It's just a waste of time in this state. If you can verify if somebody's priced super high and your offer seems like a low ball and we have a way to explain why it's not, then that's fine. But you know, there's a subset of investors who learn this terrible thing where let's let me send out a hundred offers, you know, all you know, 50% of the price and just see if someone, you know, whoever's gonna take that deal, there's so much wrong with that house. So yeah. no chance anyone's taking that deal, especially like the markets are steaming hot now. So um I do think it's really important and I do think that it's something that's really overlooked in the field um investors in general think i mean the public in general thinks real estate agents are you know just rotating bobbleheads who open doors but when you meet the top one percent you'll get it uh, and they are hard to find though yeah and we and we deal with um i didn't know too much about it my wife became our agent for our flipping business it just made sense but dealing with a lot of the agents we've dealt with on selling them has been some total nightmares yeah and then we've had some amazing ones and now I'm starting to see the difference in what people do and how they work and negotiate. And it's like, we, we have a list of agents that if they put an offer on our flip, we're not working with them anymore. It's not worth. Yeah. I, I have a black, I have a blacklist. I mean, everybody should, it's just, you should have a blacklist for investors too. People yep. you won't work with wholesalers should have a blacklist and, and investors should have a blacklist on wholesalers because you, that stuff is going to keep coming up. But one thing you said is is interesting. You did meet a lot of agents that you're like, ooh, they're good. 
that's the thing that investors don't understand. If they're working with somebody like me, who I know all the agents and I know how to present an offer and I know how to present an investor, I'm going to win a lot of deals just because of the relationship. If we're close on price, yeah. I'm going to be the tiebreaker in that because they know I'm going to close my clients close. I always vet my clients. I have the proof of funds. I can tell you other deals that they've done. And when you're dealing as a listing agent and you're listing nice properties and some rando comes to you with a, an investor and they just send you like this hard money letter, that's not going to get anything done. Most agents and even most investors don't understand that there's a big difference between cash, hard money, private money, HELOC. Cash is cash. The other stuff's not cash. Yeah. HELOC's the closest to cash because it's unvetted. It goes into your account. Hard money and private money usually have some form of a, an appraisal. So that's not cash. Like a mortgage is cash then, and it's not. So they have to understand that a lot of people are, you know, I was saying before, a lot of real estate on all sides, investing, you know, agent listings is just puffery. People want to look bigger than they are, but it's just, you're not going to get anywhere like that. You're going to be a one hit wonder, you know, like Kajagoogoo, no offense to them, but. And what's, and, and what happens is as you build these relationships, it's unique how they continue to kind of help. And so I'll give an example. We bought one from an agent back in August of last year, we flipped it, sold it. And then my dumpster guy called me and said, Hey, this guy just evicted a tenant. He's going to sell. I gave him your number. Well, he already had an agent. The agent was somebody that we had already worked with in the past. And so the minute his name and my name came together, he vetted the client. He said, there's no need to put it on the market. These guys will close price. Exactly. Works. And it was done. And we, we saw no competition from it. Yeah. And that's what you want. I mean, I, I don't like competition because I think most of it's kind of BS. You know, it's like if you're, if you go say, you know, you say you're doing off market, this is a little side tangent, but that's my specialty. Uh, so say you're doing off market, you know, and you show up, you think you have a direct appointment with the seller and you show up and then there's five people there. Most people are sitting around trying to fight to get the property. I just leave. I have no interest in I, it's already too many people like I know somebody's going to say something dumb to them. And they're going to offer more than than I am because I know more. Yeah. But the first thing that I say when everybody's there is I said, well, ask everybody in the room to show you a proof of funds on their phone. And if they do it, uh, 99 percent aren't going to be able to show them a proof of funds because most are wholesalers and they don't understand that it's wholesalers. I like real investors. I like wholesalers who are ethical wholesalers. I just don't go down with the whole business like. If someone's there to buy for cash, then show me the money. And if they can't show you the money, they really shouldn't be in the room. And that that's just the way that I do it. And it's also the way that I leverage myself to win deals because I'll just open my phone and show them. At least somebody needs to be explained to a, an unsophisticated seller how wholesaling works to be able to, to be in that room and to explain like, I am gonna get an extra cut on this, this is why. I'm going to bring people to the table. You don't have to do anything. It's easy to explain good wholesaling. Yeah. You just, you can't hide it. And when you hide it, I think that's, you know, part of the problem with that part of the industry. I have seen, I will say in the last couple of years, I have seen more wholesalers be more transparent with homeowners and it makes everything a lot easier. The showing, the closing, the whole process. If they say, Hey, this is what's going to happen. As long as 
they do what they told this the seller they're going to do and everything works out then you know it, it generally pays off for everybody it's because there's a subset of people who finally started to take wholesaling as a business and business yep. involves client service and and you know accountability to to both parties in the transaction like you said if you're a wholesaler, you have a like you have a list. Like they know you. They're gonna say, like, hey, Brandon, do you want this property? I'm gonna give you, you're gonna be on the first list of people to get it. I think what investors don't understand, if you're a baby investor and you get a, an email from a wholesaler, that's like fourth servings. We've all seen the deal, we've all passed. So you're getting the thing that nobody else wanted because it already went through the VIPs. It doesn't mean it's a terrible deal, but it's not. Nobody else wanted it. Yeah. You know? It's like when an investor is looking on the MLS and they send to you as an agent, they're like, oh my gosh, this is looks great. And I said, it's been on 193 days. It means every single investor in this area has passed on it. Everyone, because they all know 10 agents. So you're saying that you think this is the diamond in the rough that a hundred of the best investors in the area have passed on. There's something wrong with it. It's not for you, you're brand new. And that's what I think where the desperation principle of today is investors, because you, you know, you're on social media, you see everybody with all, with all their alleged, you know, 500 doors and you get FOMO about doing it. And I do think there is a thing to like get started, but I think people get a little bit too desperate and they make bad decisions. And that's why we look at ourselves as advisors with licenses to help people not make mistakes. Cause if you mess up the first deal, you may not be back in investing, you know, five, six years, you have to climb out a hole. A lot of people have had to. Yeah. So for somebody looking to build a relationship with an agent, and let's say they don't have the cash, let's say they don't have, you know, can't pull their, their app up and, and show up, but they do have reliable private money or whatever it is. How do, how do they start that relationship with the realtor and, and start to kind of build something there? Yeah, one work on the relationship. And I think the the best new investors, I call them baby investors, not because I think they're babies, just because they're getting started, like they're still learning, you know, how to how to walk as an investor, the best uh, investors who are new, present like what the future is, not in the way that people I'm going to do 20 deals, like, yeah, you're not going to do 20 deals. I don't even know you. you haven't done a deal. So I don't know if you're going to do 20 deals. I want someone with a plan and who understands their financing. I interviewed someone on my podcast, Drew Brenneman, great guy. And he he had like, as a kid, he, he did eBay. And he was just making yeah. like a crap ton of money at like 16. And he found an agent by exactly doing this. He presented himself well. He was clearly young, but he said like, this is my funding. I'm already vetted. This is how much cash I have. These are the types of properties that I'm looking at. And then he found an agent in the beginning who like listened to him was like, I don't care how old this kid is, he really has it going. And I think that's what you want to build. You can't blame a real estate agent for not wanting to show you 20 houses when you're unvetted. Yeah. Like if you show me houses, we're going to go on a journey together because I love to look at houses. I don't care how many houses we look at, but I want to make sure that I'm taking you into houses that you can prospectively buy or else it's not, it's not fair to the seller. You know, and yeah. that's one thing that nobody understands is they're just thinking about themselves all the time. If I can't confirm that someone can afford a $500,000 multifamily, it's not in anyone's best interest for me to bring them in for a showing because then the seller is like, oh, how'd the showing go? Oh, turns out they weren't even qualified. You know, and multifamilies are hard to show. There's tenants. You have to be even more respectful of the tenant's time when you're showing multifamilies. So, you know, making sure that people are vetted and then helping them. 
like you said, they're brand new. They come to you. You want to work on a cooperative uh, relationship. And I would say that the I like people who ask more specific questions when they're new as an investor. Anyone who asks like, how do I, how can I be a good investor? It's too, it's too broad. I want someone to say like, I've been looking at FHA and 203K. I think I'm okay with doing renovations. And then I can explain what the difference between the two is. But I think you need to come to the table with more than like, hey, I want to do, you know, 10 deals in 10, in 10 months. And I want to use hard money. Like hard money right now costs like 15% for a new investor. So that's like not attractive deal for anyone. And I'm not comfortable having someone brand new trying to flip a house on 15% and two points right now because they're not going to make any money. Yeah. Hey, you got to move that quick. So I mean, yeah, but again, correct. But your brand new investor, it always costs twice as much and takes twice as long. So, right. you know, you're putting yourself behind the eight ball. And again, that's the the way you know, going back to what we said before, that an agent really cares about you is when they're saying like, definitely don't do this deal. The bad reaction from investors is, oh, you're trying to steal this deal. I really, there's this is the worst deal ever. <laughs> I don't want it. I just don't want you to lose all your money. And like 2023 is not a great time to be a first time flipper. Uh, because even if you have the money to burn, you're gonna burn more of it than you think. Yeah. And in, in 2023 is also unique because we have inventory going up and prices going up, which is which is not seen very often. Yeah, and it's very market specific. You know, yeah. there's a lot of people who are looking out of state. That's a whole different landscape. But if you're looking local, you really need to understand where your market's going. If the prices are high, maybe it is a good time to look in the outskirts. You know, I think you have to know basically your two hour radius, which is important. I find it really hard to believe that there's not an investment opportunity within two hours of where everybody lives, even people in California. Two hours each way, there's something available, a town that may be on the up and come up. If you keep doing your research, there's going to be something out there. And that's like just drivable enough, but also you can't go there all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I agree with that 100%. People that go in these crazy virtual spots, there's there's always something you can get to within a certain radius. Oh, As a new investor, I think there's nothing more important than being able to see, feel and touch your property. So being at least in an area where you can see it enough to have a connection to it, not an emotional one, but a connection to this asset that you may turn because then you're going to know when to sell. You know, yeah. a lot of people buy turnkey and then they're just like sitting on, you know, $100, $200 a month returns, but then one furnace breaks and then all of your turnkeys are losing money. You know, if they forget that one thing can go wrong and you can tank a bunch of tiny investments. Yep. And it's, it's, you know, one big thing and yeah, you your cash flow has gone for a while and it can be gone across multiple um, years wow. yeah it could be think about it someone who wants to get excited they have 10 doors they're all cash flowing just a hundred dollars a month you know so that's like i mean that's a thousand dollars you know and then a furnace breaks 7500 for just like a half multi-family furnace so that's seven months that you just lost on 10 investments because you were you think that a hundred dollars a door is okay but if you're if you know that they're all appreciating great but a lot of times if you're buying turnkey 
they're turned out to you at their max value and they're not huge appreciation plays. They're like smaller cash flow plays. So like the taxes can go up, then you get obliterated. So just, these are just all things to consider. I don't mind turnkey. I like, I think the idea of turnkey is great. I would just rather do it one off than in like a turnkey funnel. Let's talk about your podcast a little bit. The Zen of, what is it? Zen, yeah, Zen and the art of real estate investing. Got it. And so what? what's the big focus on that? I can talk mindset, health, all that stuff till the cows come home. And so what, what was the reasoning behind you know, creating it? Yeah, I mean, the tagline is the mindful approach to real estate investing for a reason. I feel like there's so much coming at us right now in every part of our lives that new investors, everybody's looking to invest in real estate. I mean, they are but there's so many gurus and things coming at you that the only way to really start to understand is to like first focus on yourself, make sure you're solid going into it. If you have a desperation mindset, you're gonna make bad decisions. You know, if you're investing for reasons to try to get, you know, famous on social media, probably not gonna go well in the long term. Maybe you'll get lucky. I mean, people get lucky, but I've just found that the more centered I am as a person, the better investment decisions I make. And the more able, again, I am able to say no to deals. Uh, it's exciting when you're investing first time, second time, third time, when you see a property that you love, but you have to be able to set your limit. And that's all part of the mindful approach. Walking away is your best negotiation strategy in the history of real estate investing. Everybody knows this. If you're willing to walk away from the table, you have leverage and too many people fail by not acting on their leverage and giving the other party leverage. And then, you know, you're always going to get stuck with a deal that you could have done better on, but you have to be willing to lose some deals along the way. And sometimes those will be good deals. I've lost plenty of good deals that I wish I would have done, but I, I don't go back and feel bad about it. You know, it was just the way that I negotiated. Yeah. It's, um, setting, setting limits, understanding your buy boxes, your criteria, your cash flow. There's so many things that go into buying an asset other than just does this one deal, you know, work outside of itself. Yeah. And another part of the mindful approach to real estate for investing for me is outside of, you know, spreadsheets. I don't use spreadsheets. I use them on flips just to calculate how much we're spending and estimations. But like, I do not put any properties through a spreadsheet. Sorry, commercial assets, five units and up will go into a spreadsheet because that's a cap rate that I want to see. But yeah. in general, that's not what I rely on. To me, I'm buying assets like our 2023 term is asset hunting. And that's what I'm looking for. I want assets and assets don't have to cash flow right away. There can be a variety of things that go on. I'm looking for something that makes sense to me that I can look at. I'm proud to own this. This has, you know, a part in my portfolio, which is why I like diversification of a portfolio. And that's also a mindful approach. It's easy to get to say like, oh, I'm just going to do, you know, I'm just going to do the burst strategy or I'm just going to focus on, you know, this. But there's so many investment opportunities out there that it's great to widen your view a little bit, you know, see what syndications are about. Take a peek at self-storage, you know, just start to understand that there's other things because you may be a really bad landlord. Most people suck as landlords. It may not be for you. So for someone who doesn't like people, doesn't like to management, like you shouldn't have Airbnbs. <laughs> like you're going to suck at it. You're going to be annoyed all the time and you're not going to want to do it. Then you're going to pay someone, you know, 25% to manage for you when you could have just got another asset that you don't have to pay management for. 
So I think like the holistic approach is understanding that there's all different types of investments. The more relationships that you build, the more podcasts that you listen to about investing open up so many different, you know, worlds just, you know, like, you know, you have me on as a guest. When I have people on as a guest, I'm learning something on every episode. And then I'm like, wow, I never thought of that. Like, I've learned so much about syndication just from having guests on my podcast. And, you know, for new investors, podcasts like are everything because you don't have to listen to everyone. You can look at the topic, see if that person and then go, oh, this is right up my alley. Yeah. You know, and you can listen to specific people. And then exactly. as you and then as you find somebody, you can follow them on some others and learn. Um, there's so much knowledge out there for different asset classes, different investing strategies. Um, you don't have to get stuck with, I only have to wholesale single family homes in the beginning to get started. I think I've seen a lot of posts that 2023 is a great education year just because prices are high, like we said, like dig in, go to meetups, you know, get on in Zoom groups. I'm not a big fan of Facebook groups because I think they all just, you know, turn into just a deluge of people just spamming their own garbage. But there are some good ones. Local Facebook groups are much better. You know, meet other investors who do what you do. The reason that we do meetups is because I can say, Uh, you know, have someone who's looking for their first house hack, and then they come to a meetup. And I'm like, here's five people standing here who who've done their first house hack. Talk to them. You know, don't talk to me. I haven't done a house hack. I know everything about it. But like, why don't you talk to these other investors who've done house hack? What are the pros and cons? You know, where did they go right? Where did they go wrong? Do they like management? And I think like, again, I like social media. I like podcasts. I like training programs, but they're not all good. And over time, you have to try a lot of stuff to see who you can trust. You know, if you're going to listen over time, can you trust it? And I think you have to, you know, put the work in to see if that's a person you can trust. Yeah. And, and, and you've, you've kind of touched on a little bit. It, it's putting in the work, you know, when it comes to creating the relationship with your agent, when it comes into understanding your asset class, you just don't say, Hey, I listen to this podcast. I'm not going to go buy a hundred unit apartment building and that's it. You know, you have to, do your research, talk to people, do some site visits, do, you know, get in where you can get in so that you can start to understand and learn about whatever it is you're trying to learn about. Yeah, you just said something really important. It was in site visits. One thing that uh, baby investors are making the biggest mistakes are is they're just they're running deals on a computer or calculator or doing out of state and they're not looking at anything. Even if you want to invest out of state, go look in state. You need to know what properties smell like, what they look like, what they feel like, what it feels like when your feet are on laminate floors versus LVP versus hardwood. You have to understand what renovations cost or you're never going to be good at investing. And that's very, very difficult. And the only way you can do it is if you're not licensed with an investor friendly agent who you have a relation with ship with who who likes looking at homes. Also, they have to be an investor also. Because guess what? Most properties aren't going to be for you, but they may have other clients for it afterwards. But you have to look at homes like it's crazy to me that someone would make an offer on their first investment property if they haven't looked at like at least 15 to 25 homes. And that again, that is a hard spot because some agents aren't going to want to do that. That's why you have to build the relationship to know that like I, I'm going to try to help this person get educated if it turns out they don't want to do this. I'm going to see a bunch of properties that maybe I have other investors for if they're not interested and that's how you develop it. But I found just way too many people, you know, doing armchair quarterback 
running numbers and not seeing properties. Like you have to see properties to understand what it means when they're sloping floors. How much does a structural renovation cost? Can you move a wall? You know, can you do that here? You know, th these yeah. things are, you're not gonna know from afar. And of course, an agent who just wants to sell you a deal is gonna tell you everything that you wanna know from a thousand miles away. Oh, sure, there's no structural issues. You know, are you doing a sewer inspection on every property that you buy? You should be because sewers are going to cost you a lot. If you're in a, even if you're in a, a public sewer, just the line from the house to the street in my area costs 15 grand if you have to replace it. And we have old clay pipes. You know, are you checking for oil tanks if you're in those areas? These are things that like new investors with bad agents are going to buy properties. You know, if you're in a non-attorney state, and nobody's protecting you, you're going to end up with something. You're going to dig some stuff up, find a sewer hazard. We were talking about a furnace. What if your sewer breaks? Oh, uh, it's we. It's bad. We learned a hard way in a new city. <laughs> yeah, Me too. We learned, a, we learned a hard way in a new city that um, they had these things called Orangeburg pipes, and they were these clay pipes. Yeah. And went four for four. All four homes need to have new. Oh my god, yeah, that's a and, lot. <laughs> yeah, and we what? Luckily, two of them we knew about, so we had budgeted them. But then two we didn't know about. And then we found out that pretty much the entire city is full of yeah. those pipes of that. So now if I buy in that city, it comes with a sewer inspection, period. Always, but think about, so this is what is crazy for investors. Like I'll say like, hey, if we're looking in more rural areas and they have septic, septic, you know, is different. You, septic right now, uh, we've, the last, we did a septic on my flip, it was 42 grand for just a full redo of a septic. We had other quotes for, at other properties for 60 and 80 grand. There's investors who you say, hey, look, it's septic. You need to do, you know, we need to do a septic inspection. They're like, no, it says as is, you know, like, I just want to, I just want to get it. And you're like, it, it could be like 80 grand. Yeah. You know, like we're trying to protect you again, which is why I do it this way. And I will not write those offers because I don't want my name on somebody's bad offer because I'm responsible for it. And I think like on all sides, you have to, you know, you have to look at it that way. That's like a more holistic approach. Are we all in this together? Uh, and maybe like, please don't be desperate. This isn't the time to be desperate. <laughs> Cause you, you, you did, do you feel like though, when you bought those four, were you like, you didn't know. And then you were like, maybe we shouldn't have got all four. You figured it out. But like you're sometimes you're you want to get stuff because like it all makes sense. But you're just you're too excited. You miss a couple of the little things that could come back to haunt you. One of them we did. The, yeah. the, the two that we knew about, we actually one of them, they had it all dug up from the backyard. And so we knew it was sewer. And then the one another one, we actually had them escrow because we asked about it during the inspection, and everything. And they were like, no, it's all fixed. It's blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't believe any of this. And so I was like, I'm fine to close it, but you guys need to escrow $10,000. And then whatever the bill comes back, we'll take the bill out and then you have the rest. And it, and so we did okay. But one of those, we were in a mode where we kind of sold everything and we're looking to move on a yeah. property. And, and we did well in the area and just, yeah. And but so that's it's why it's good if you're if you're able to leverage properties and you're clustering, which is buying near each other, you can withstand. It's like if you the it's a difference between buying a four family and a two family. You're more protected on the four family because if one unit needs a big renovation, you still have three cash flowing units. Yeah. You know, so if you you know if you if you're buying you know three or four properties in an area, you have a hedge against one something making a bad decision or uncovering something crazy. But 
everybody should be doing the max due diligence if they're not experienced. And like, if you're a brand new investor and you're working with a real estate agent who tells you to buy a property as is, you should fire them because you're brand new. You have no reason to buy something as is. And if your reason yeah. is, well, I can't win unless I do, that doesn't mean it's going to cost you a <laughs> any less later. Like yeah. we're trying to protect you in the beginning. Like do not buy as is if you're a first time investor, it will come back to haunt you. And, and, and to add to that, if you do get in a spot, let's say it's even after due diligence or whatever, it's much better to lose the earnest money than Correct. it is to lose on the deal. It's, it's a great point. Great point. Yeah. If you do it the right way, you're able to negotiate. I've had a couple where uh, I wasn't sure I, I was on, I, I never should have dropped some deals, but like I, I was like over worrying about it in the middle. And I wanted to get out. So I just called, you know, I was the agent for myself at the time, or no, this was off market property. I just called the seller and was like, listen, I'm going to ditch this. You know, can we just negotiate? I had probably like 15 grand earnest. I said, can I just leave you five grand and we'll call it a day? And he said, yeah, no problem. He was another investor. I was like, I'm really sorry. I think I like, I was thinking at the time I was going to move. So I really didn't want to hold the property. So, you know, I was transparent and it worked out, but it's a great point that you made. You're like, you know, losing earnest money. Okay. I mean, you made a bad decision, but you're not trying to take the whole albatross later. You know, yeah. it's the same when, if you, if you're flipping and you get to the end and you're going to make zero, you know, or you're going to lose a little, that's just the way it goes. You still get back the deposit. You know, yeah. so you have your down payment to go put into something else, but like you can't turn a loss into a win by magic. If you spent too much money and that's what the current value is, like you either need to rent it and hope that it's going to go back up or you just need to bite the bullet and, and go try again and take the experience that you did on that one, not get too upset about it, which again is just another mindful principle to try to keep more centered as an investor. Yep. We had one uh same neighborhood with all the sewer lines um we contracted it and did our inspection our gc basically he was like dude this house is riddled with active termites and he started pulling up some rugs and you could see where the hardwoods were eaten out and um and so we called the agent a they didn't disclose it and we and so we ended up backing out we negotiated where we didn't lose any earnest money and then Somebody and I know bought it and I tried to tell him before, I was like, dude, please, you need to inspect this house where you buy it. It's, and now they're stuck on it. They had to turn it into a rental yeah. and it's, it's, there's no, there's nothing they can do about it. And so you, you just have to be okay. I mean, obviously you don't want to lose a bunch of earnest money deposits, just wasting your time. But if it's in your gut or if something comes up, big stuff, rewiring homes, sewer lines, septic tanks, man, those things can break you and, and, and ruin it. Yeah, I think you do have to trust your gut and I've trusted my gut and I I still now, I probably shouldn't have gone out of a couple deals, but you can't feel bad about that because yep. I'd rather trust myself than, you know, be stuck with a property that I don't want later. Yep, no, and that's because uh, it's rehabbing a property that you know you're gonna lose money on is, you know, it there's nothing fun it takes a lot of the fun out of it you know no, even, and if you'll, you, even if you have to keep it as a rental you know you're still going to leave a bunch of cash in it which is better than losing it but you may not have that cash to leave at that moment i mean if you don't know your rehab costs you know you're a quarter of the way in you've already spent your rehab costs and then you're stuck so you're either going to get foreclosed on or you're going to do like the worst job ever and it's going to sell for way less than you ever thought 
probably won't even sell because you didn't do a good flip when it's supposed to be a flip, you know? Yep. It's something that, you know, as newer investors, um, it goes back to the Instagram, the stuff, the desperation with it. And, and the key is just, you know, trust it. And, and I like the idea of building an agent relationships. I think, um, I've, I've done a good job with it in my market and how my mind changes helped us a ton. So, yeah, and, and have advocates have deal killers that are there to, to give you opinions. I think that both sides, investors and agents have to look at the value of the other side. If you're an investor and you think real estate agents are stupid, like you're going to lose a lot of money in your lifetime, especially when you're listing your flips. Like people list flips with these 1% listing brokerages. They're not doing a good job. You want the best listing agent in the business because they know all the clients. They know how to run it. I mean, I list my own because I have a big team, but like I, I it, it drives me insane to see like nice properties going out with a 1% listing. We all know that the seller's cheap. Like, and it never works because they don't do anything. Their photos are terrible. Their iPhone photos, you know, it's just not professional. And then on the other end, you know, for agents need to look at investors that, wow, how much can a really good investor add to my business? A lot, yeah. a lot. You know, remember this four flips a year is not a lot for like a regular flipper. You know, that's one a quarter. That's eight deals for you as a real estate agent. Most real estate agents do two deals a year. That's the average because it's just a tough business. If you just had one investor client and all you did, you knew they had money, say they're vetted for like, you know, X million or they have funds. And all you did was work that one client. You would do better than probably 98% of the real estate agents in the game with just one client. If they were a good investor who you could rely on and you built a great relationship. And that's where both sides forget, uh, you know, everything's about relationships. The people who don't value the relationships they build, you know, end up doing a lot of business by themselves and making a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And it's, it, it takes, it's, it's not near as fun to do it by yourself. <laughs> Whether you make money or not, it's it's I I it's definitely more fun to, you know, do business with other people, do business with like-minded people, and make money together. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, I appreciate your time. I had a blast chatting with you. Is there anything else you want to leave with our guests for final note? No, probably best places to find me on Instagram and most socials. You'll find Instagram and TikTok. You'll find me at Trust Green. Green has an E at the end. On uh, YouTube, I have a ton of investor content. It's Jonathan Green RE on YouTube. Um, and then if anybody's interested in working with my team, we cover all the whole state of New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia and Bucks County and Pennsylvania, Elko County in Nevada, and then parts of the Catskills and Hudson in New York. It's just streamlined with a D dot properties. That's the website. Um, and I appreciate being on your podcast. I love when people listen to mine as well, which is then in the art of real estate investing. Um, but yeah, it was great talking to you. You're a great host. I mean, questions are important. You're getting out information for investors that can help them. And I think that's, you know, both of our missions is help people not make the mistakes that uh, are avoidable. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. And I, I enjoy it. And I think, you know, a big takeaway I, that I'll continue from it is, you know, like it's all about learning is, you know, build these relationships. If you're, if you're an agent with investors, if you're investors with agents, Bet them, build them, and and grow your business with that that side. So I, I appreciate everybody. Go check out your podcast as well. Yeah, appreciate and, it. Uh, yeah, you have a good one. Appreciate you All coming right. on. Thanks, Brandon.